And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have opened our ears to hear it. You've opened our eyes to see your word and to understand it. You've given us your spirit. So Father, today we pray that we would rest in your mercies, that we would hear clearly your word, and that we would be delivered from everything that is not helpful, any error, all distraction. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I miss now that we rely so much on Apple Maps and Google Maps and GPS is that we no longer carry the Rand McNally Road Atlas in the car with us. Uh, everybody over a certain age just knows what that is. Maybe everybody under a, under a certain age um, needs to be uh, filled in on the fact that we used to carry these huge maps with us in the car, these big, heavy, large format maps uh, that had all of the highways and all of the you know, smaller roads of every state in the United States bound together in this big, colorful book we called the Road Atlas. And uh, you, know, you fold it in half and you shove it between the seats and then when you take a trip, it's always there, right? Um, I spent many hours as a child in the back seat of our station wagon studying the highways and the back roads of states that I had never been to. I grew up mostly in the Midwest, but we had family scattered all over the place, through the South and um, toward Ohio. So I, I spent a lot of time in the car as, as, a, as a child. And browsing those road maps, I wondered what life was like in some of these places, what the people were like, what did they do for work, what did they do for fun. I remember looking up my name in the index in the back and finding this mysterious place called Garner, North Carolina. And I thought, what a magical, amazing place that must be. What an incredible place. And I'll probably never have any reason to go there, but wow, that must really be a nice, uh, really, really uh, upscale town. Um, and. Uh, and of course, I moved here and found out differently. But um, <laughs> using the atlas gave us a mental sense of where we were in relationship to everything else. It, it put a spatial map in our brain. Whereas, you know, blindly following Google map directions, though very convenient, we don't have to think beyond the next turn and we tend to lose a sense of, of where we are. Likewise, having a sense of biblical geography, a mental map of the ancient world is critical to understanding the scriptures. And geography may not be as fascinating to you as it was to my seven-year-old brain in the back seat of the Ford Granada station wagon. However, uh, the travels of Jesus in the gospels are key to understanding where we are in the story. It's important to know where Jesus is and his audience and, and who he's talking to, where he is 
in his mission. We may assume that Jesus spent most of his time in the fields and in the countryside around the city of Jerusalem. He might have dipped into Jerusalem every once in a while and then finally comes into the city uh, uh, in that grand procession uh, when they wave palm trees. But that's just not the case. Jesus does not spend most of his time around the city of Jerusalem. In the early part of his ministry, which we've been studying up to this point in Matthew's gospel, he spends his time way up north around uh, Nazareth and around the fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee, about a seven-day journey by foot from Jerusalem. Um, There he ministers up in that area to the poorer people. There he works with the, with the working class, the out-of-the-way people, the people who aren't in charge of anything, the people who don't have any influence, uh, the people who don't have any wealth, sitting, they're not sitting in these seats of, of power at all. Later on, as we've seen over the last couple of chapters, powerful people come out to find him. Powerful people make that trip up from Jerusalem And he responds to those elitists differently than he responds to the blue-collar working-class people in Galilee. And over the last couple of chapters, we've seen Jesus take an excursion out from Galilee to Gentile territory, and then he came back near his hometown briefly before this account today we read about, where he heads up to Caesarea Philippi, which is a two-day journey north of Galilee. And this is a place rich with history and cultural and political relevance. Now, if we're just reading this casually and we come across Caesarea Philippi, we might just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just another town. And okay, thanks for that information, but that doesn't mean anything to me. He's just coming to this this other town. But in fact, it's relevant. Uh, And there's, there's a great significance to this place. The city is far away from Jerusalem. And this is the northernmost point that Jesus is ever recorded to have traveled in the Gospels. And in this section here in this place, he's going to prepare his disciples for what is coming for them when they next head south toward the city of Jerusalem. From here on, over the next four chapters, Jesus is going to keep moving south until uh, chapter 21, he finally arrives in Jerusalem. But before he sets his face toward Jerusalem, before he sets off toward his final showdown in that city, he pulls his men away one last time, goes up to Caesarea Philippi, way north, which is mostly a non-Jewish area. It's outside the domain of Herod Antipas. It's away from the scribes and Pharisees, a place where he'd be left alone to teach his disciples for a short time. He's got a lot of work to do. He's got a lot of left to teach his men, and the time is running short. So he pulls them aside to say, are you really with me? Do you really understand what we're doing here? Do you know what I'm about? Do you know what my mission is? And can I trust you to carry on the work of my kingdom once I leave? And so he chooses to do all of this, to give these last marching orders, do this in this place, which is full of curious spectacles and rich with historical and cultural significance. First of all, this region had a high concentration of ancient temples dedicated to the Canaanite god Baal. Now, by this time in history, Baal, that that ancient god of the Canaanites, Baal is old news. Everybody, all the hip kids are worshiping, you know, the Roman and the Greek gods now. 
but the old Baalist temples still stood as these, um, these, these ar uh, artifacts of Baal worship. There was, there, this was also very near the place where, remember Jeroboam, when he split off the northern 10 tribes, he built a shrine to uh, the calf god. He put one in Bethel and he put one in Dan, and Dan is very near this place. So this is, this is a place with a long history of idolatrous worship. It's a center of idolatry. And not only were there temples to, to Baal, there was this deep cavern there at the base of the mountain that was said to have been the birthplace of the Greek god Pan. Pan is the god of, of nature. And so this deep cavern with this deep uh, cavernous lake that nobody had ever gotten to the bottom of. They would, they would dive in there and nobody could find the, the bottom. And so they called this, this is the gate of Hades. This is the entryway to the underworld out of which the god Pan came into the world. So this was a place important to Greek idolaters as well. Out of that cave came a spring of water. And the little stream that flowed out of that cave flowed down to the Sea of Galilee and became one of the tributaries of the Jordan River, which traces all the way through the land of promise, all the way down to the Dead Sea. So that river, the Jordan River, which stood at the center of so much of, of, of Jewish history, started right there. It started up near Caesarea Philippi. That was the headwaters of the, of the Jordan River. Additionally, just in the name of this place, Caesarea Philippi. This is a place named after Caesar Augustus and Philip, the son of Herod the Great. We've already met Philip in Matthew's gospel because his wife, Herodias, was stolen by his brother, Herod Antipas. So uh, this is a place named after uh, Caesar Augustus, Caesarea, Philippi, named after Philip, the son of Herod the Great. And to honor Caesar, Herod the Great had this, this huge white marble temple that, that proclaimed the godhead, the godhood of, of Caesar. So the first thing that you would see approaching this city as a traveler would be the sun gleaming off of this massive white marble temple dedicated to Caesar. And there immediately you would be reminded of the reach and the extent and the authority of the Roman Empire. Not only that, the city sat at the foot of Mount Hermon, which I read about in the baptism this morning, where Psalm 133 mentions Mount Hermon. It's the tallest point in the region, uh, about 9,000 feet tall. It is probably the mountain Jesus walks up in the beginning of the next chapter for the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a great high mountain for the transfiguration. That's the highest mountain in the area, Mount Hermon. Um, uh, and, and Psalm 133, as, as we read, mentions the, the dew on, on top of Mount Hermon, which flows down and waters the land. So all of Israel sits downstream from Caesarea Philippi in more ways than one. Like the water flows down to water the whole land, but the, uh, the political and the religious corruption there also pollutes the whole land, as it were. So here is Jesus with his 12 men, standing in this place, littered with the temples of Baal, shrines to Greek gods, and a place that's a source of water for the whole land of promise, a place which has its horizon dominated by this, 
this obnoxious cult of Caesar worship, this great temple dedicated to Caesar. Out of all the places Jesus could have brought his men, this is where he comes. With all of this as the backdrop, with all of the world's twisted political and religious prowess in view, with all of this in the backdrop, he asks his men, what are people saying about me? Who do men say that I am? And the disciples answer. They say, well, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Other people are saying you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. How are people coming to these conclusions about Jesus? Um, well, let's take them in order. Uh, some people say you're John the Baptist. Well, we've already met somebody who thought that. Herod was one who thought Jesus was actually John the Baptist is because his guilty conscience was killing him. He had put John the Baptist to death, and here Jesus is, he thinks, oh no, John the Baptist has come back from the grave. But apparently, Herod is not the only one thinking this. Maybe Jesus had a close enough family resemblance to his, his cousin, John the Baptist, that there might have been some confusion along those lines. There, there had to be some fear and superstition underlying that as well. That's very confusing. There are others who say that Jesus was Elijah, and, and by calling Jesus Elijah, they're being complimentary. Elijah was the great prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah was a powerful prophet who worked miracles. Now, not all the prophets worked miracles. Remember, um, Isaiah doesn't work any miracles. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel is, is protected by the mighty hand of God. Uh, Daniel is delivered by God's mighty hand, but Daniel doesn't work miracles himself. You don't have any miracles of Hosea or Obadiah or Zephaniah. Um, but, but Elijah did work miracles, and a lot of Jesus's miracles mirror some things that Elijah did. So they're saying maybe Jesus is Elijah resurrected. And they say that with hope because Malachi said Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so they think, well, if Elijah's here, the Messiah is on the way. They think Jesus is the forerunner of Messiah. Well, they missed that the forerunner was actually John and Jesus himself is the Messiah. And some other people are saying, well, he's, he must be Jeremiah. There was a tradition going around at this time that, that Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, left Jerusalem before the Babylonian invasion, that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant with him and he went and hid out in the mountains and that he would make an appearance before Messiah came. Well, um, that's... Uh, not in the Gospels, by the way, that, that Jeremiah is not hanging out in a cave. Jeremiah would be over 500 years old at this point. Uh, but they think maybe Jeremiah wandered into a cave and maybe he's coming back out to pave the way for Messiah. Now, not everybody who's misidentifying Jesus is necessarily doing this with malice. These are all complementary associations. They're not saying, well, Jesus is the resurrected Haman or Jesus is the resurrected Goliath. They're not saying any of that. It's the Pharisees who say Jesus must be doing this by the power of Satan. But the common people are just, are just recognizing that there's a kind of greatness to him. They're paying him a kind of respect, but still they're falling short. They don't understand. Similar to the way today people might think that they're respecting Jesus by saying, well, he was a great teacher, and I mean, he's probably the victim of Roman cruelty, or, or 
Uh, some people, you know, think it's so, um, so, so great to say that, oh, well, I believe he existed, as if, as if we're supposed to be impressed by that. You know, well, he's not like Robin Hood. You know, he's not like a, a legend. He's not like King Arthur. I, I believe he existed. But none of this counts for very much. None of, this, none of this is belief and trust in who Jesus is. None of this comes from a position of trusting Jesus to be the one sent by God to deliver us from our sins, to save us. And so all of, these, all of these assumptions about who he is fall flat and they come up short. All of this scuttlebutt was out there about who Jesus was, but what did the disciples believe? This is, this is the question. He turns the question to them. The most important question that anyone will ever answer, the most important question you will ever answer in your life is the question Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? You gotta get that question right got to know who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Everything hinges on this question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the answer. Peter, Peter gives the right response. Peter steps up to answer for anybody else. He says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. What does he mean by that? What's he saying? Peter says, you're the Christ. Christ means Messiah. You are the anointed one. Christ is not Jesus's last name. Um, Jesus isn't Jesus Christ born to Joseph and Mary Christ. I mean, that's, it's not his last name at all. It's his title. The, the title of Jesus is Christ. It means anointed one. It means, it means Messiah. He's the one who has been ordained by God the Father. He's the one who's been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be the chief prophet, fully revealing, revealing God's will to Israel. He's ordained to be the great high priest, to offer himself as a sacrifice. He's our only heavenly intercessor. He has been anointed to be the eternal king who governs the world, who defends and preserves his people. That's all taken up in this title, Christ. He's the one ordained to all of these offices. And he's the one who embodies all of God's promises to deliver his people from their sins and to crush the head of the serpent. And so Peter says this. He says, that's who you are. You're the one. You are the son of the living God. Not just a great teacher, not just a great prophet, not just a revolutionary. You are the priest, the king, the prophet that God has sent to us to deliver us. And when Peter says this, Jesus rejoices. Jesus, um, he's glad over the titles that Peter has given him. And Jesus honors Peter in return. He calls him Simon, which is his Jewish name, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. I don't think this means Peter's dad's name was Jonah. I think this is a reference to the passage we read last week where the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any more signs. You have all the signs. Go read your Bible. Go read the prophet Jonah. That's the only sign I'm going to give you. And now here when Jesus asks his disciples, who am I? And uh, Peter responds correctly. Jesus says, that's right. You're a son of Jonah. You get, you get it. You understand what's going on. You understand the sign that I gave to the Pharisees, that in the time of Jonah, Israel was an adulterous and wicked nation going after other gods. So uh, Yahweh turned to the Gentile nations. He sent his prophet to the Gentile nations to stir up Assyria and to come judge his people. Well, that same thing is happening now. The same thing's about to happen in this generation. And Peter got it. And so Jesus says, well, yeah, you're son of Jonah. You know what's going on. And Jesus says, Peter is blessed because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to him. Peter didn't reason his way there. 
Peter wasn't looking for a sign vainly like the men in the previous story. This truth was revealed to him by his Father in heaven, which is, by the way, the only way anybody ever professes faith in the Lord Jesus. They must have their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. They must be granted faith and having the Spirit move on them to grant them repentance and to illumine their minds so they can see this. So Peter rejoices that Peter knows and that Peter sees. And, and, and Jesus does this little wordplay with his name. He says, you're Peter. That means rock, Petros in the Greek means rock. Sometimes you see Peter named Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for rock. Jesus says, you're Petros. Uh, Petros, like um, if you're petrified, you turn to stone. Petroleum is rock oil. Uh, anytime you see Petros, it's, it's rock. And Jesus says, you're, you're a rock, you're a stone. And on this rock, I will build my church. But Roman Catholic apologists will tell you that this means, therefore, Peter was granted the office of the first pope, that Jesus here is elevating Peter to a position of preeminence over the rest of the apostles and, and putting him in a position over the entire church. Well, it's true, Peter is already significant. Peter's all, always taking the lead. It's evident that Peter had a level of prominence um, in the Gospels. He's leading in the early chapters of Acts. He's the one preaches on the day of Pentecost. But over time, Peter fades out of the story. When you get to Acts chapter 15, Peter is not at the helm anymore. It's James who is presiding over the church in Jerusalem and directing the council at Jerusalem. And then after that, Paul is preeminent. So if Jesus is promoting Peter uh, to the head of the church, it would be confusing that Peter just drops out of the story so quickly. He fades after a while and he's quickly replaced. So it's just not supported by the text that everybody defers to Peter after this point. That's just not, that's just not true. No, Jesus does not grant to Peter exclusively a new office in the church, but Jesus is saying that Peter and Peter's faith and Peter's confession of faith is the rock on which the church is built. At the foundation of the church is this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession is the ground floor. That is the bedrock truth of the Christian faith. And that confession, along with the people who make, who make that confession, make up the building materials of the church. In the book of Revelation, when you see the heavenly Jerusalem, the church descending from heaven, you see at the foundations of that city, on the, on the rocks, on the stones, you have written the names of the apostles. Um, the apostles are the foundation of, of the church. Peter's name would have been written on, on those stones. And then, and then as, as the apostles are the foundation, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, we then, like living stones, are all added to the walls of the church. The church is made up of the people who share this confession that, that Peter makes. Paul talks about, I'm sorry, Peter talks about this in his epistle. When Peter writes his epistle, he doesn't say, well, remember that day when Jesus put me in charge of everything and he called me a stone and he, he gave me this exclusive title. Jesus made me exclusively the head of the church the preeminent pastor of the church for all time. Jesus, um, Peter does not say that. No, what Peter says is, no, you all, you all are living stones that make up this great house. In 1 Peter 2, 
Speaking of Jesus, he says, coming to him as a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, you all are living Petros, Peters. You all are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, in Zion, I lay a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him, there's that confession that Peter makes, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So what Peter writes in his epistle is, that, is, is just elaborating on what Jesus said to him in Matthew 16. Is Peter a stone at the foundation of the church? Yes, absolutely. But so are the other apostles. And all the saints make up the church as she stands through history and throughout the world. We make up her walls and her towers. The church is built out of the saints who profess what Peter uh, confesses here. Jesus as Peter says in his epistle, is the chief cornerstone, but he's also the builder. He's also the architect. Uh, Jesus and the apostles love mixing metaphors, and it's great. Um, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't mess you up. When Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice, you say, how can he be both? Well, he is. You just got to figure it out because he is. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. Jesus is both the stone and the builder. Jesus says, I will build my church. Who builds the church? Who is most invested in the growth and the health and the stability and the purity of the church? Who adds to and takes away from the church? It is the Lord Jesus. Uh, the, 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 it is the Lord Jesus himself. There are organizations in the world called churches which men have built. Men have built them apart from the Lord Jesus and they deliberately ignore God's word, and they're not ashamed of it. They ignore core doctrines of the Christian faith, and they're, they're wide open about that. They're not, they're not hiding anything. They participate in every worldly perversion of truth, and they're adrift on the ties of whatever is popular, whatever the current thing is. And those are not the church built by the Lord Jesus. We identify those, and we separate ourselves from them. We refuse to imitate them, and we call them to repentance. But it's Jesus who's building his church, not, not built by men, by him. We take great comfort in that, that our duty, our calling, our responsibility is not to build the church. Our duty is to be faithful to him, to be locked in on pleasing him. And whether this means that he gives us 10 people to gather with or 100 people to gather with or 1,000 people, we trust that he is building his church. He's the one doing it. And I want to be part of the church that Jesus is building. Again, whether it's 10 or 15 or 100, I want to be part of the church that Jesus is building, not the church that uh, man is building. So he is building his church, and he promises that his work will not be thwarted. It's not going to be thwarted or derailed by sin, not by Satan, not by wicked men, not by hell or Hades itself. Jesus says here to Peter, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we're inclined to think, what does that mean? The, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means when evil, wicked things attack the church, uh, they're not going to be successful. And while that's, that's true, that's not what Jesus says here. Gates are not offensive measures. You don't you know, rip the gates off your city and go charge another city with your gates. Gates are defensive measures. 
If the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, who's on offense there? Who's on the, who's on the attack? The church is playing offense, not defense. Remember again, when Jesus says these things, he's standing there in Caesarea Philippi amid all of these symbols of pagan worship and Roman authority. And his declaration here means that all of this is coming down. All of this is going to be defeated and nothing can stop the progress of the church. The gates of hell are defensive. And when the church storms those gates, those gates give in. Those gates fail to protect what's inside. The church assaults and, and assails them and they, they give. And, and it's true. As Jesus stands there and looks around, uh, where's Baal today? Does anybody worship Pan? Do you have anybody in your neighborhood or anybody at work that worships Pan today? Uh, how about Caesar? You got any Caesar or Herod fans in your family? Uh, those don't exist anymore. Those gates didn't stand, nor will the threats and the opponents of the Lord Jesus today. Jesus has rivals in the world today, and all of their gates are going to fall. And not only gates are, are gates defensive, not only do you keep things out, but gates are also places of judgment and commerce. Throughout the Bible, you read about in, in ancient cities, the gateway of the city, the gates are where the elders sit. That's where the judges sit to hear cases, to admit people to the city, or to expel people. And all the merchants who come into the city, they flow in and out of the gates. And the gates were places where people set up shop to get people coming and going to sell them their wares. So wicked cities have wicked judgment. And wicked cities have wicked economies. And we see Sodom's, I'm, I'm sorry, Lot sitting in the wicked gates of the city of, of Sodom in, in Genesis. So, so not only are the defenses of the kingdom of hell going to come down, but the faulty judgments, the, in, the injustice, the, in, the economy of hell is going to collapse. In the gates of hell where truth is perverted, where judgment is perverted, uh, all of that is going to be defeated. Uh, truth in, in the gates of hell, truth is judged to be lies. In the gates of hell, goodness is judged to be evil. The innocent are declared guilty. All manner of wicked ideas are bought and sold in the gates of Hades, but those gates will not prevail against the invasion of the church. The third thing gates do, the third thing the gates do are, are to keep things in. They not only keep things out, they're not only places of judgment, but gates keep other things in. The kingdom of hell has captives. The kingdom of hell has slaves held in bondage, chained to death and ignorance and darkness, and the church sets those captives at liberty, which Jesus shows us in his uh, death and burial as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into Hades. What did he do there? He set the uh, captives at liberty and led captivity captive. He delivered them from Hades. So the gates of hell will not hold those whom Christ uh, delivers. And, and so in order for the church to be successful in her mission with Jesus to do this, the Lord Jesus delegates her authority to do her job. Verse 19, did you catch this? I want to read this again quickly. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a solemn and sober and fearful authority that Jesus has given his church. 
In Revelation, several places we read back when we studied Revelation, Jesus has keys. Jesus has keys to death and hell. Jesus has keys, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, he says, I delegate these keys to the church, meaning that when the church preaches the gospel to call men to repentance and they believe, they really are saved. And when the church unites someone in covenantal union with Christ by way of the sacraments, they really are united to Christ. There's no asterisk there. I don't, I don't spend 20 minutes when we baptize someone explaining what baptism doesn't do. We don't take time to, to undermine your confidence in what Christ is doing through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. We're not telling you, oh, I don't take this too seriously. No, this is real authority. Uh, there's, there's, there's no asterisk. And when the church exercises her duty to discipline someone and put them out of the church, that person is really and truly out of fellowship with Jesus and out of fellowship with the church. And they're in great danger of eternal judgment. Now, are there abuses and irregularities and anomalies in the church? Yes, absolutely, there are. And Jesus will judge them as well. It's his church. But the exceptions, the the irregularities don't undermine or negate what Jesus says here. The church has been given authority. It's been given the word and the sacraments to bind and loose on earth. And what the church does on earth, he's promised that he will uphold in heaven. Now, our authority is delegated authority. Our authority is under Jesus. He can overturn our judgment. He can overrule us, but only he can overrule us. The church reports directly to Jesus. Well, this is one of the places in the scriptures where we get our perspective on what the church is. We learn here from Jesus that the church is an actual institution of authority placed on the earth by Jesus, and that she has real judicial authority. She has power given to her by her Lord. I'm afraid that the majority of the people in the world and, and, and sadly even many Christians assume that the church is just this unusual club that we're, you know, something like the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or some kind of charitable organization. We're just on the periphery of society. You know, we're kind of weird, kind of out of touch. Some people are helped by the church in some ways, I suppose, but the church really doesn't have any relevance or authority or role or function in the world. And the church certainly doesn't have any authority. The church doesn't have any ability to govern. It doesn't even have anything to govern. I think that's the assumption. But Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says the church is the visible, physical representation of my authority on the earth. And I've given to the church the keys. I've given them, I've handed the keys so that what they bind will be bound and what they loose will be loosed. Paul says in Ephesians that the church is his body. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the end of chapter one in Ephesians. The church is the fullness of Jesus. And that's what we mean when we say the church is the body of Christ. It is through the church that Jesus is made present in word and sacrament. It is in the church where people meet Jesus. It's in the church where we're forgiven by Jesus, where we're restored to fellowship with the triune God and where eternal life is found. There is no other way to fellowship with the triune God, no other way than in the fellowship of the church. Jesus has put his church in the world to disciple the nations. He says, all authority is given 
uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The church baptizes the nations. The church has been placed in this situation of authority and power to disciple the kingdoms of the world. The church leads the nations in obedience to Christ. The nations aren't going to disciple themselves. The families of the earth are not going to disciple themselves. And, and no one is pleasing to God apart from fellowship and obedience in the church. And so the church has a, has a central place in the world. It has an enduring place and an eternal place. Jesus continues to build her into the future. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation and you see the future that God has planned for his people, it doesn't matter how far out you look, the church is still there. The bride is there. The heavenly Jerusalem is there. I'm not sure the United States is there. It will be if it submits to God. I'm not, I'm not sure that Western civilization is there. It, it must be baptized. It must submit to Christ. My personal family, uh, my family unit, my house, my house dies when I die. My house dies when my wife dies. My children leave and they go start their own Families, they start their own houses. My family, my house has an expiration date. All the empires and all the kingdoms and all the governments of this world have an expiration date. As uh, Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So all of these things have expiration dates. The church alone among all the authorities God has placed in the earth, the church does not have an expiration date. And it's to the church that Jesus gives the victory over the gates of hell. If your family charges the gates of hell on its own, uh, it will perish. It, it, God has not promised any nation or government or empire victory over the gates of hell. So if you want your nation, your people, your family to live, to stand, if you want to be blessed, if you want to have eternal life, that nation or family must submit themselves to Jesus and to the church. So what I'm, what I'm saying is I think you already know and I think you've already got it, but it's, it's something we need to repeat to each other and to everyone who will listen that the church is not peripheral to society. It's not peripheral to history. She is central. She's not on defense. She's on offense. Her, her calling in the world is not to follow around the political parties, tacking herself on to their agendas, begging for scraps from their tables, hoping just somehow, just, just think I'm relevant, just, just, just see me as somehow important. No. <laughs> Tragically, Christians have bought to the idea and to the idea that the church is irrelevant to eternal life. The church is irrelevant to our relationship with Jesus, mostly irrelevant to society and to history. And they didn't get to that conclusion on their own. Sadly, they've been discipled by pastors and elders who've made worship a joke, uh, who, who haven't exercised any authority in disciplining the boundaries of the church. They haven't ensured the purity of the doctrine of the church, and they, they treat gathered worship as this, um, as this non-essential thing. It's just not important. It's not important. It's our job in our day to proclaim the opposite of that, to recover the centrality and the authority of the church for us to be these living stones building up the walls of Zion, building up this mighty new Jerusalem, this formidable fortress of the church to be faithful churchmen and servants 
of the church, to pour ourselves into the life and ministry and the community of the church. Why? Why do that? Why invest yourself? Because this is the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is personally invested in. This is the institution that Jesus died for and the one he is perfecting and the one he is preserving. If, if all of this victorious language sounds over the top or extreme, think of how much more radical and more incredible it was on the day when Jesus first said it. This little group of nobodies had to get away into this place dominated by conspicuous idolatry and obnoxious governmental power. They had to get away just to have some peace and rest and they're hounded by these hateful critics on every side back home. None of this looks very glorious. None of this looks very thrilling or hopeful. And it's in this place where Jesus says, you men, you, you who articulate your faith like Peter, you who trust in the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God, you are my church and I'm giving you authority and I'm giving you my presence and I'm giving you my power. Blessed are you, Simon, he says, the people who make this profession are the blessed ones. Despite all outward evidences, I am preserving you. I am building you up and I am giving you victory over the realm of death and sin and the devil. Now, if you put yourself in their place on that day, that's unbelievable, right? And yet the one who proved himself faithful to them is the Jesus who has preserved his people all these centuries and will continue to do so. So where do my allegiances lie? Where do my loyalties lie? in things that have expiration dates, or in the eternal community that is gathered around Jesus as the chief cornerstone. My allegiances and my loyalties, all of them are with Christ and with his people. The people who get the question right when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? The people who respond, oh yeah, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Those are the people that my loyalties are to. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church, we thank you for the presence of your bride in the world, and we thank you that you have endued her with authority and power and your presence. And so, Father, may we not take these things lightly, but rejoice in them and walk in this confidence that you are building up your church. Father, strengthen us by your spirit every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.